Father, thank you for times like these where we refresh ourselves by singing and praying together by the study of the word. Father, would you help this Sunday morning routine not to be routine today? Use your word to impact us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, There is no doubt that one of the great minds among the many great minds of our founding fathers was Benjamin Franklin. He was just a most remarkable guy. Uh, I'm not sure what you picture when you see Ben Franklin. I have a picture in my mind. I'm not sure where it came from. Some kind of a storybook back in elementary school, I, I suppose, of this like white-haired fat guy flying a kite out in a thunderstorm. If you stop and think about that, though, how remarkable is it that you could figure out electricity? I mean, that's fantastic. He was a statesman. He was a student and a scholar, a writer. He was a politician. He was a scientist. He was an inventor. One of the things Ben Franklin is known for is his pithy, wise sayings. And we quote them. Sometimes we don't even know that we're quoting Ben Franklin. If you're not impressed with this, You need to sit down with your big pen and a yellow tablet and you try writing a couple pithy proverbs that 240 years from now people are still quoting. And you will realize how difficult that is. Let me give you an example of a couple. Um, By failing to prepare, Ben Franklin said, you are preparing to fail. That's a good one. Ben Franklin said, um, beware of little expenses, a small leak will sink a great ship. That's good, isn't it? It's a good reminder. He said, um, life's tragedy is that we get old too soon and wise too late. (laughs) Another one that Ben Franklin wrote of his many, many proverbs is very good. I thought this was very good. Either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. Let me say that one again. That's good. Either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. Very good. Now a couple that I'm sure you know and are much more familiar. Perhaps his most familiar saying of all. Uh, you'll probably start saying it with me once I start saying it. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if that bothers you, say person wealthy and wise instead of a man. And now the one that bridges us to our Lord's teaching this morning in Matthew chapter 17. Ben Franklin wrote, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 17 this morning, don't you know that as we conclude chapter 17 of this great gospel, our Lord is addressing death and taxes. Now, these are interesting little passages of Scripture. They are two separate, unrelated passages. You're going to see that they're even in two different geographical locations. If you want to follow along in your notes, you might find that helpful. Let's read our text, and uh, then we will uh, dig in and see what we can get out of these interesting passages here. Um, You'll recall that we've been on the Mount of Transfiguration early in chapter 17. They've come down to encounter this desperate man with his um, epileptic, demon-possessed son who throws himself in the fire and in the water. And they, we had this, that lesson on mustard seed faith. And our Lord 
uh, challenging the disciples to not doubt and to have strong faith. And he healed that boy. What a moment. What a great, great Lord Jesus we have. And then it says in verse 22 for our text today, as they were gathering in Galilee, so they've moved on. We don't know exactly how many days have gone by. And time and distance, we don't know exactly. But it says in verse 22, as they, that would be the disciples, were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, okay, so now they've moved from Galilee to Capernaum. It is possible, some speculate, that they are back at Peter's house. There is some uh, reason to believe that in Capernaum, Peter's house was um, kind of a headquarters. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, okay, that's an amount of money. Your Bible might say the temple tax. Uh, The two drachma tax, the ESV says, went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. That's Peter came in the house and Jesus spoke to him before Peter could speak to Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you think, Simon, calling him by his surname, his last name, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said, Peter said to Jesus, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. (laughs) What do you do with that? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really interesting as we work our way through Matthew. um, And this would be one of the days. We have a message and a text that I think I would go my entire ministry career and never preach a sermon on. For one thing, I have, I'm not even sure what it means. You know, we'll talk about that a little bit. I mean, the more I preach it, maybe I'm getting more out of it. Um, By the third service here, hopefully you'll get the best um, run of it. But isn't it a good thing to let the word of God interface with our lives? And that's one of the reasons why we go through books of the Bible. I hope you're not too weary of hearing Pastor Van say, turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Um, You do need to be reminded once again this week, as I have been reminding you, that we are now uh, tapering off on the timeline and we are heading to Jerusalem. What I want to point out this week is that as we enter chapter 18 soon, we have to go to chapter 28. You think, man, there's a lot of Matthew left. What you need to recognize is that what's going to happen, there's going to be a lot less accounting of activity and there's going to be extensive, deep teaching of our Lord as he pours himself into the disciples. We have some amazing passages ahead of us that are very relevant, very challenging, don't grow weary. And even in the meantime, as we make our way through Matthew, here we are finishing up chapter 17, two unrelated cases, uh, unrelated situations, and our Lord addresses death, his death, and taxes, his taxes. I don't think I really realized that until we, I was working on this message that Jesus paid taxes. I never really paid attention to that. I have to tell you, that helps me a lot. It just calms me a lot. 
And, um, well, let's see what we can find here. Jesus on death, particularly his death. If you're following along in your notes, you'll be reminded there that this is not the first time that our Lord has addressed his disciples with this insight or warning or prophetic picture. Guys, you need to know, I'm going down to Jerusalem. Wicked men are going to grab a hold of me. They're going to kill me. He does say in Luke, in Matthew's account here, that I will rise again. And they don't get it. The first thing I want you to see in our text this morning in Matthew 17, 22 uh, and 23 here is that as Jesus teaches them that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. It says in verse 23 that they were they were greatly distressed. The first thing you need to know is that it was very concerning to them, very concerning And they were greatly distressed. Well, I guess so. They love him. They believe in him. They acknowledge him to be Messiah. They've seen him exercise his omnipotence as the master of the universe. And now he's telling them that he's going to go down to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed. And I think part of what happens here is the shock of that. It is so foreign to their thinking because remember, and I've reminded us of this several times, even as we get to chapter 20, they're still going to be arguing over who gets to sit on the throne and they're picturing a literal kingdom, who gets to sit on his right hand and his left hand. They do not understand this to be a spiritual reality. It is very physical to them. They very much want to conquer the earth. And, and you know how it is when you're understanding something to be a certain way. Maybe you're working on a project and you thought it would be a certain way or you're studying a certain topic and you thought it would be a certain way and then you realize it's not anything like you thought it was going to be. You kind of get stuck and you have to realign and retool and figure out the new direction because you were so sure it was this direction, but now it's this direction. And I think as the disciples have in their mind a direction, a momentum for the kingdom that they think is going to be so great... And as our Lord says now, I'm, I'm the Son of Man, his most, his most repeated uh, name for himself that they understood to be Messiah, a, a description of Messiah, the Son of Man, based on the Old Testament. And, and then he said, these wicked men will kill me. They, I think they got stuck right there. They couldn't even hear the part about rising again. And it's like, oh, okay, it's not a problem. In three days he'll rise again and it's all good. It's like, just distress. Now, it appears that they have learned from Peter's error not to argue back when he tells them he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. No one pipes up and says, not on my watch, Lord, because they all don't want him turning to them and say, get behind me, Satan. They learned the hard way from that one. And so there they are, and it's very concerning, and they were greatly distressed. Now, it's interesting that not only was it very concerning and distressing to them, but when we look at Mark's account, and remember in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have these parallel accounts. It's interesting, and go to Mark chapter 9, that Mark adds a little bit more detail for us. And not only was it very concerning, but it was confusing to them. It was confusing to them. Mark chapter 9 and verse 32. Now, um, while I'm thinking of it, let me add, though, that when we get to this funny story... As in odd, funny, not like hilarious funny, but this odd story of the fish and the coin in its mouth and paying taxes that Matthew, that's unique to Matthew, that is not recorded in the synoptics or in John at all. So it's a unique story to Matthew. But this part here where they are discussing 
for the third time. Now, this is the third time that he's telling them that this is going to happen. It was confusing to them. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 32. Look what he says. Same, almost exact verbatim. Verse 31, the hands of men that will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Then verse 32 of Mark 9. And it says, but they did not understand. You see that? They did not understand. And they were afraid to ask him. They're just confused by this. When we go to Luke's account in Luke chapter 9, turn to Luke now, um, we add even another level of, of, of an, an element here of what's going on in the disciples' minds. So it's, it's very concerning to them. Uh, they're distressed by this talk. It's very confusing to them. They do not understand. But in Luke's account, he doesn't add the phrase that he would rise again. Look at verse 45 of Luke 9, and it says... Um, in, in this account here, in verse 44, Jesus just says, let these words sink into your ears. The ESV says, sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He says nothing about the resurrection, and it immediately goes to the response of the disciples in verse 45, and it says there, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. Well, go figure that Look what it said. It was concealed from them. So how is it that our Lord, as he introduces this subject to them, says, okay, boys, I want you to get this between your ears. Sink this into your mind. He just said, I want to sink this into your ears. I want you to listen to me. I want you to understand. And then it says, he tells them about going down there to die. And then it says, but they didn't understand. Not only did they didn't understand, but it was concealed from them. Luke 9.45, it was concealed so that they might not perceive it. In other words, this is, there is a barrier. It is being held back from them. So what do we do with this stuff? How is it that our Lord wants them to know something and then He holds it back from them? Well, when we, when we don't have the answer in the text directly... One of the things we have to do is we have to think about other passages of Scripture that might have some application here that might shed light on our little dilemma here. So our disciples are with our Lord. He's giving this prophetic statement, and He's telling them what's going to happen. They're, they're very distressed. It's confusing, and we find out it's concealed. And immediately what I have to ask myself is, okay, so who's doing the concealing? Is Jesus Himself creating a barrier? Did it come from God the Father? Is God the Father veiling their eyes, confusing their mind, keeping it from... Is this a work of the Holy Spirit? Some would suggest that it's the work of Satan. Oh, Satan is blinding their eyes here. But when we look at, at who, we also question why. We've already raised that question. Why is this going on? Who's causing this? It's possible that when we look at John chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, that we get some, some light shed on it. I put it in here. You're welcome to turn to John if you would like. But in our notes this morning, I have the passage that I want to look at there. John chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, gives us an insight. And this is Jesus teaching his disciples. And notice what he says. He says, I still have many things to say to you. Okay, in John 16, that's getting really close to the end of his ministry. And he continues to teach them. But it, it is interesting, now think about this, that our Lord went to heaven and he didn't teach the disciples everything they would know. He still had many things for them to learn, 
Okay, but remember, it wasn't because he was a bad teacher and it wasn't because he didn't do time management well. It was because there were things that they would learn later. It wasn't time for them to learn them. And notice what it says. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says to his disciples. But John records for us that he said, but you cannot bear them. Isn't that interesting? You cannot bear them right now. But he goes on to say, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. That's the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit is going to do the work of the Father in continuing the teaching of the disciples. And this really does make sense in, a, in if you stop and think about it. Because, I mean, let's just go to the upcoming timeline that we know is going to take place. They're going to come and get Jesus. Judas is going to betray him. We know the end of the story. The disciples didn't. Judas will betray him. They will take him into captivity. They have the kangaroo court and Jesus is crucified. He's buried. And where are the disciples? They're going to hiding. They become terrified. Three days later, Christ arises from the dead. The disciples, a week and a half later, are still in hiding. They're in, the up, they're in a room hiding under the table with the Windows and doors barred for fear of the Jews, John 20 tells us. Because they are still confused. They still don't get it. They think everything's lost. And they're just figuring out about the resurrection. Okay, how many days later does Jesus ascend into heaven? Acts chapter 1. 40 days. Okay, so you go from being confused and having this stuff concealed from you. And we know from other passages of Scripture that it is after the resurrection, sometime after, that this, they began to remember what the Lord said to them, and then they understood. So 40 days go by. Jesus ascends into heaven. He promises them then that the Holy Spirit is going to come. This is the passage that talks about the Holy Spirit in John 16 and 17, where it talks about the Holy Spirit will come and you will do greater things than I, Jesus said. How could anybody do greater things than Jesus? Well, Jesus operated in a little part of Galilee in Capernaum in Israel. But when the Holy Spirit comes, these powerful preachers are going to spread out all around the globe. I mean, I've been to a, up on the Yukon working and I've I've found God's people in little tiny Eskimo villages up there, toothless, old, ancient Eskimo people praising Jesus and loving the Lord. And God's people are there and the fellowship of believers is precious. And Jesus has never been to the Yukon that I know of. I mean, he's omnipresent, but in his earthly ministry, he never went to the Yukon. And so the, the message of the disciples, listen, when Jesus left, what was there? Maybe 500 believers when he ascended into heaven. And now there are millions of God's people around the globe. Greater things will happen. How did that happen? How did all of this make sense? It's because when they waited in that upper room in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes in tongues of fire, and they are filled with the Spirit of God, what happens? Guys who about a month and a half before are confused, and it's all concealed, and they don't get it, and they're frustrated, and they're concerned... About two months later, they're standing in downtown Jerusalem preaching with all the might and power and authority of Jesus himself. How? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And, and they're not only are they preaching what they know from Jesus, they're preaching, they're, they're pulling stuff from Psalms and from Isaiah and from Malachi. They're pulling the Old Testament and Leviticus and they're, and they're expounding the word of God with great power, great authority. People are being saved. The whole church makes sense. The whole new movement of God's message of the gospel through Jesus Christ makes sense. And it all clicks in them and it all happened. Why? Because they weren't quite ready yet for that when they were with Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit came, that's when their blind eyes would see more completely. And then God in his sovereignty, just that's how he unfolded it. They weren't ready, perhaps emotionally. They weren't ready uh, to, to process spiritually and emotionally everything that Jesus could teach them. Not only that, as we look at the end of this part of the passage, we see that not only was it concealed from them that they might not perceive it because they could not bear it at that point, but it, it was an uncomfortable thing, this talk of our Lord's death. Luke 9.45, it says that they were afraid to ask him about this. Mark recorded that as well. This became awkward and uncomfortable. Lord, we don't get your death. But there he is, and we're back in 17 now of Matthew, prophesying, projecting what's going to happen, telling them with precise detail, this is exactly what you need to expect. Well, there's our Lord speaking about death, his death. Well, we move, and they move to Capernaum, and it says in verse 22, and they were gathering, excuse me, not from Capernaum, uh, no, uh, gathering in Galilee to Capernaum, that is correct, verse 24, excuse me. And when they came to Capernaum, verse 24, we now have another encounter and we move from the topic of death to the topic of taxes. It's kind of interesting. Let's remind ourselves of what we have here. This is where the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and they said about Jesus, does your teacher not pay tax, pay the tax? And Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. And they have a conversation. The first thing let's do as we approach Jesus on taxes here, his own taxes, is let's just, uh, let's just give a little information that I think will be helpful. So as we look at some information. So in your chapter divide in your Bible, which is not inspired, but the publishing company does that, it might say in your Bible, uh, the temple tax. Or Jesus pays the temple tax. All right? But when we read the text, the way the ESV translates it, we don't get that right away. It says when they came to Capernaum, so they have moved. We don't know how much time has gone by. We don't know exactly how much distance they've traveled exactly. And it says then the collectors of the two drachma, the ESV translates it uh, instead of temple tax. It's more literal in the Greek translation is this double drachma, uh, double drachma tax, two drachma tax. And, and so let's just get a little information. What you need to know is that this is, letter A, a temple tax. We've already kind of said that. What you need to know is that that temple tax isn't something that they made up. It is a Jewish tax. It's not a Roman tax. Okay, so it's a religious Jewish tax. And it's based upon the law in Exodus chapter 30, where they were instructed by God through Moses to give this tax, it was collected around the time of Passover, by the time our Lord um, encounters it. And it's based on Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. You don't need to turn there. It's kind of an odd thing to think about at first from our vantage point. But it is basically, it's called an atonement tax. 
So he asked yourself, well, what is that all about? So under the law, it was instructed by God that they would have a sacrificial system, right? And, and there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood, right? Hebrews talks about that. Leviticus talks about that. Something's got to die to pay the price. The blood has to shed. Well, at Passover time, particularly in different feast times of the year, but at Passover time, the streets of Jerusalem, it's my understanding, the gutters would, would literally run with blood. There was so much sacrificing that was going on. Well, the temples had to supply sacrifices for people, sacrificial animals, and have prepared different kinds of sacrifices. Some the people would bring, some would be provided by the priests. And so they would pay a temple tax, an atonement tax, so that these animals, so that they could do their sacrifices. And so it was given by law in Exodus 30 that every male 20 years and older would pay this two drachma tax. Now, it's interesting, we're going to find out when they catch the fish and pull the shekel out of its mouth, that, that a shekel is worth four drachma. And so uh, there is no coin, there's no coinage, there was no measure for two drachmas. That was half of a shekel and they didn't have, they didn't have a penny, nickel or a dime that fit that. And so it's interesting, it was often customary, because of that, two men would go together and they would pay their temple tax together because one shekel, which was their small, a small coin, would pay for two men because it was a shekel's worth four drachma. So two drachma is about two days, it's about two days labor in value. So it's not dirt cheap. I mean, if you run a bulldozer for two days and, and the IRS walks up to you in a big black car and a big black suit and a big black briefcase and they say we want your money all right and you say man how much you want i want two days off you well you've been running a bulldozer and eating dirt for two days that's a lot it's a lot you know you've been working hard and so these men males 20 and older it's interesting in exodus 30 it does say there and it gives instruction that rich and poor alike will pay the same amount on this temple tax so because it was a temple tax and it was a jewish jewish custom and given by the law, the officers would be sent out by the priests from the temple. So they would send out tax officers and they would go around and hit up all the 20-year-olds and up and get their temple tax um, around the time of Passover. What's interesting then is that as they come out, these temple officials, these officers who are collecting the two drachma tax, they go to Peter and Peter is evidently outside of the house by the way it's worded, I'm assuming, it doesn't say for sure in the text, but it appears that Jesus does not hear the conversation. Peter's outside in the street or in the byway. Jesus is in the house and they come up and they are talking about Jesus, but they ask Peter. So they ask a question. The question was directed at Jesus, but it was asked of Peter. And it's interesting what they say. And they say, um... Does uh, I lost my place. Excuse me. Um, they say, does your teacher not pay the tax? Does your teacher not pay the tax? And don't you get a little bit of an edge there because it's worded in the negative? They just say, has he paid his tax? Will he pay his tax? Has your teacher not paid his tax? What's going on? Now, one commentary that I read suggested that it was improper for the tax officials to approach directly a rabbi and ask him for his tax. And so you had to go through his staff. That's possible what's happening. I don't know enough about 
the cultural background to affirm that for sure. It makes sense. There's something else that is suggested about this passage is that this was a trap. Okay, we do know that the religious leaders were always out to get Jesus, right? They always wanted to embarrass him. They always wanted to humiliate him. And it is possible, it does not say it in the, ta- in the text, and you can't just assume that it's true because of the way Jesus ends up dealing with the tax. He doesn't seem to worry about paying it. But here's the suggestion that this could have been a trap. You see, the point is that Exodus 30 is where the directive comes that you have to pay this tax. And so if Jesus is asked, do you pay your temple tax? And he says, no, what's he guilty of? He's guilty of breaking the law. He disobeys Exodus. Now they got him. Oh, you can't be Messiah because you broke the law. They were always doing this kind of thing to him. If he says, yes, I do pay the tax. What have we learned about the tax? It's a temple tax. It's an atonement tax. It's for the shedding of blood of animals to cover my sin. And so if Jesus says, yes, I pay the tax. Oh, then you are a sinner and you need sacrifices for on your behalf. Oh, we thought so. So it's possible that that's what's going on here. And so our Lord, as he often, often did, just does the totally unexpected thing. So there's a little bit of information about this, about the tax and about the question that is asked. We then have in verses 25 to 27, an illustration based upon the political system of the day. Here's the illustration. Take a look. Okay, so we can't miss the fact that when he came in the house, verse 25, Jesus spoke to him first. Matthew records that Jesus spoke to him first. That's the, the implication in my mind that Jesus is knowing their thoughts again. You remember the stories? He always knew their thoughts. Like in Mark chapter 2, for example, that's where the guys brought their sick buddy and lowered him through the roof. And, and Jesus forgives the guy of his sin first. And then the Pharisees all around him are in shock that he would forgive sins. And it says, and knowing their thoughts, he then said, okay, buddy, if you're not impressed with me forgiving his sins, I'll say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. He knew their thoughts. He's, listen, one of the great takeaways of the sermon today is never mess with Jesus. He'll win every time. And so he must know his thoughts. He's a little, a spark of his Deity comes through there and he's showing his omniscience, his all knowingness. And he says right away, what do you think, Simon? Simon was his surname. That was his last name. I I call Shoopy by his last name a lot. I don't know if he's offended by that. I've never checked in with him. Uh, I often just say, hey, Shoop or hey, Shoopy, what's going on? That's what Jesus is doing to Simon. And I do that. I play racquetball with Jim on Wednesday mornings and I don't have a very good record against him. I'm embarrassed about that. But I go to play. I don't go to play ball. I go to ask questions. And so I'll say, like Jesus said, "Okay, Simon, what about? I say, "Okay, Shoopy, what about? Then he always does the same thing Jesus does. He says, well, what do you think? <laughs> He's just not very helpful. <laughs> and so he says, he says, what do you think, Simon? He's talking to Peter and calling him out by his last name, kind of man to man there. From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? All right, here's my illustration, Peter. You just got asked a question about me being taxed and whether I pay my taxes or not. So let me ask you a question, Peter. 
If there's a king on the earth, who do they take their toll or their tax from? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said from others, then Jesus says, the answer is, then the sons are free. All right, so here's part of the meaning of this passage, but we have to understand the illustration. And the illustration is based upon the normal system, political system of the day, which was uh, autocracy or uh, autocratic government. That is, you have a king. It's autocratic. It's one guy rules and it's family based. Okay, so let's just remind ourselves that we live in a system that is kind of like the pyramid is right side up. And we are a republic, right? And all of the people, the government rests upon the shoulders of all of the people. And the higher you climb the power chain and up to the top offices and finally the pinnacle, the presidency, all of that is supposed to be based upon the desire and will of the people. Okay, in this day, it was exactly opposite. It's the upside down pyramid and it's the king and all the people rest upon the king and everything that he does. So a king did not charge his family taxes. All right. A king, no king ever taxed his own family. Peter knew it. Jesus knew it. Everybody knew it. It's a little bit like we know the system's rigged here. It's like if you're in the House or the Senate or whatever, you can make laws and you can make taxes and you can make health rules and you can make banking laws and post office laws and cafeteria rules and everybody else has to pay, but you don't have to pay. It's like, who do you think you are? You don't have to pay. Well, we make the rules, so, you know, we don't have to do it. And so that's the way it was in this day. The king, the king spoke, and that's the rule, and that's the way it was. And of course he didn't charge his own son's tax. He charged the community tax. If his son was into horse racing, and he wanted a barn and some new horses, he raised the tax and buy his son some horses and build him a barn. The royal family took care of the royal family, and everybody else, that's just the way it is. Peter knew that. Jesus asked the question. And so Jesus says, okay, who does the king charge taxes? So then he says, okay, look at it here. It's kind of funny, odd. And he's, when he came in the house, Jesus said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said this, he said from others. And therefore Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Listen, he's talking about the temple tax. His point is made about the temple tax. So what you need to understand is that the temple was his father's house. The temple was his father's house. Part of what Jesus is teaching here, okay, is that if he's my father and the temple is his house, and Jesus said that when he was a little boy, 12 years old. Remember when Mary and Joseph were looking for him in Luke chapter 2, and they couldn't find him and he was at the temple. He said, I need to be at my father's house, was one of the things he told them. I need to be about my father's business in my father's house, talking about the temple. That's where he was, engaging in theological conversation with the with the leaders there. Now, the second thing that we know is that when he cleansed the temple, for example, early in his ministry, remember he went in, he cleansed the temple, he did it later in his ministry as well, two different occasions, he went in and shoved over the tax collector's tables and the trader's tables and told them what? He said, said my father's house will be what? A place of prayer. Not a den of iniquity, and not a, not a holdout for thieves. This is my father's house. So if, if the temple is his father's house and he says we're free from tax, what's he saying about himself? I'm the son of God. I'm the son. I don't pay tax. 
And Peter, by adoption, is the son of God. You don't have to pay tax either. But then there is a motivation in which he yields to that he pays the tax. So to avoid being offense, um, evidently Jesus felt that if he didn't pay the, the tax, it would create, create a ruckus or a hubbub. And, and possibly he would be accused of being irreverent or disobedient of the law or irreverent towards the temple. So let's finish the verse again. So verse 27, however, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I call that improvisation. You know, I don't know if he reached in his pocket, didn't have a... I know he didn't, but, you know, just go do this. I have no idea. I have no idea if the fish and the hook and all that mean something. All I know is what happened. I know that, that he wanted to pay the tax. And, and so he sends Peter out. It's the only time in the Bible where there's a fish hook and I take it a line used, and there's no indication that he baited the hook. He just goes and he puts this hook and line in the water, and Jesus knew that there was going to be a fish that would bite it, and he pulls the fish up, he reaches in its mouth, and there's the shekel, the four drachma worth, so that they could pay each of their tax for the temple. So what do you, you think? You know, Do you think the fish was bottom feeding, and it swallowed a little shekel, and it coughed it up at the right time? Did Jesus just kind of twinkle his nose and go shazam? And by the time Peter got there, the fish... Regardless of how it happened, I'm very impressed with that. You know, I think that something that we do have to be careful not to miss. Basically what Jesus... Jesus pays the tax... But it's after he makes the point that he doesn't have to pay the tax. And, and at least at some level reflected in this short teaching and this exchange with Peter is the reality that you don't have to pay for your salvation anymore, Peter. I'll take care of the temple tax. In fact, I fulfill the law. In fact, I am the new temple. In, in, in fact... You tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. I am the temple. Forget the tax. Just go fishing and pull, a, pull it out. And in fact, so it cost him nothing to pay his own taxes. It was a freebie. And so at some level, it seems to me that what's reflected in this exchange with Jesus and Peter and the fish hook and the shekel in the fish's mouth for exactly the four drachma amount is that Jesus provides for us exactly what we need for our salvation and it costs us nothing. The passage doesn't say that, but doesn't that kind of make sense based upon his exchange and what he did with the temple tax and arguing for the fact that the king's sons pay no tax. If you're a child of the king, you pay no tax. Praise God. And do you know why you don't pay tax? Because of what we started this service singing about. The grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled and upright lives in this present age. Listen, salvation is a free gift. It's, it's just as free as that shekel out of the fish's mouth. And Jesus pays it for us. Jesus paid Peter's tax for him. He pays our sin tax for us.
When we think of a sin tax, we think of sinful things. It used to be called sinful things in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that get taxed. This is a sin tax. This is a sin tax at the temple, but to pay for your sin. No more. Jesus stopped it all. So what do we take away from this? What do we learn from this account? I think at some level, we have had demonstrated for us, have we not, in the mind reading of Peter, in the circumstances even of the unfolding of the tax lesson in the fish, a demonstration of his deity. I think we've seen a demonstration of his deity in the prophetic utterance about his coming death. In the first part, when he talked about death, before he talked about taxes. Secondly, and perhaps closely related to number one is number two, it highlights this story does his authority. Listen, you try to use the think method on some fish down in the bottom of the pond and get them to come where the bare naked hook is and bite into the hook and have a shackle in its mouth. I'm totally impressed with that. This is, this is the master of the universe. This is the one that can make fish swim exactly where he wants them to swim and bite a hook whenever he wants them to bite a hook and have a shekel in his mouth whenever he wants them to have a shekel in his mouth. Nobody, nobody before or after can do that. And can I say it again? Why would you be embarrassed of that? That's the coolest thing I ever heard almost. That is so great. That using the think method, he can have a shekel in a fish's mouth in the bottom of the sea and a, and a hook on a line. And Peter walks over there and he hooks in and he pays his taxes. And that's Jesus. He'll take care of you. He's got it. He's never out of control. And there is a demonstration of his authority over the sea. And we've seen that before, haven't we? His authority over the sea and the storms. His authority over sickness. His authority over Satan. He demonstrates this over and over and over again because he's the master of the universe. Is he your master? You trying to be master of your own universe still? When you've got the master of the universe who knows your thoughts, you can't trick him. Surrender to him today. I think it's also a takeaway that's valuable for us this week and this time in that this was somewhat of a political passage. It related to the sort of the structure of the day and taxation of the day, even though it was a religious tax. I think that it illustrates our Lord's humility and his attitude towards authority. It illustrates our Lord's humility and his attitude towards authority. No harsh words, no bad attitude, complete submission to the rulers of the day. And that's only reinforced in the teachings of Paul in Romans 13, his letter to Titus in chapter 3. Peter talks about it in chapter 2. Can I say this before we go? Yes, I can and I will. <laughs> I recognize that our political system is a, is a shipwreck. I recognize that everything that's going on in the news and the media and the election and the corruption and the duplicity that we see. I mean, if ever we've seen a week where the kettle is calling the pot black, it's unbelievable. It, it is just, it's laughable if it didn't break your heart and make you sick. So what are we supposed to do? Now, I'm not 100% sure what to do. But I do know this. 
I do know that we don't need a bunch of sour, caustic, belly-aching Christians running around out there in the community. We need to reflect the attitude of our Lord Jesus. He said, look, they're collecting the tax. Give them the tax. It's no big deal. We've got, pardon the pun, in the context of our story, but we've got bigger fish to fry. We've got a greater agenda. We have more to do than to pine about the, the demolition of this great experiment that has lasted about 250 years. We have a, a higher calling. Now, I in no way want to suggest that you should not be involved in the system. Remember the right side up pyramid. It's the people on up. Get involved. Make change. Do it. Some of you are trying to do that. At some level, how do you make decisions? Well, pay your taxes, pray for peace, and then at the least, maybe you should vote for somebody who would at least appoint Supreme Court justices who might reverse Roe v. Wade. Maybe you could get that much. I don't know. We have some difference here. Let's lean as far righteous as we can. If somebody's going to appoint righteous Supreme Court justices, that matters to me. I'm not going to tell you how to vote or what to do or how to do it, and I think it's just a chaotic mess. But I'm going to determine, based on the modeling of Jesus, not to go out there and just whine and carry on all the time. And I'm going to determine to be about the gospel business more than ever because the bottom line is, I don't need to despise all these despicables out there. Excuse me. What, what these people need, what all of us need, what the world needs is the gospel. And they need Jesus to change their heart and their mind to turn the lights on. Otherwise, they don't get it. Dogs bark, sinners sin. Don't be surprised. Let's be about our Father's business, okay? Let's stand and close in prayer. Oh, Father, we need wisdom for living in this day. And we recognize that... Um, it's easy for us to be negative and caustic and sour. And, and we acknowledge that we have never once seen this in our Lord Jesus. And we want to reflect Him and His attitudes and His integrity and His godliness. And He was always about His Father's business. Help us to always be about our Father's business, your business, the business of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit do His work in us. I do pray for our presidential candidates. I pray for the salvation of them all. I, I pray for our system. I pray that as you've instructed us in your word and Paul instructed Timothy to pray for these folks for their salvation, that we might be able to live peaceable and orderly lives. And we long for that. And we pray for righteous leadership somehow to be appointed some level. So help us to be faithful. Thank you for your word and these encounters that we have with these tucked away passages that we rarely touch. And I trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will use it well in us as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.